0: Hey, this is Mike from the High Hash Rate Podcast, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to our inaugural episode with the one and only Mr. Brandon Quidam as our first guest. Uh, I just want to go a bit into the backstory of High Hash Rate and how we came to be, just so we have this on the first episode. So, a couple months back, I'm out on a uh, business trip and I meet a few other people from the business (laughs) that I work at and, uh, you know, there's some beach weed out there where we are in El Salvador. That's where we are. And we just start smoking some weed and as Bitcoiners do, they get into the deep parts of the rabbit hole and decide to talk about this, this, and that. Well, me and this other dude, Dan, we uh, sort of had these uh, threads, you know, going on. We got high and then we would talk about some cool shit. And I thought, you know, what a great uh, idea if there was a podcast where we could just, uh, we could all get together as Bitcoiners and smoke a bit of weed and then talk about shit. So, you know brecky was with us brecky says immediately the podcast is called high hash rate and uh, i just uh, fell in love with the name immediately so this is our inaugural episode of this of, of that idea one qualifier that i will add is that we are releasing this episode in, in its entirety which is a bit embarrassing at moments but in the spirit of bitcoin in all its transparency, I believe it's uh, a fun little choice. I'm not sure if it'll take this shape in the future, but uh, it's it's an interesting thought experiment. Anyway, enough of me. Here's high hash rate. Hey everybody, this is the High Hash Rate Podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm Dan. And this podcast is just two plebs getting high and talking about Bitcoin, life, and the absurdity of the fiat world. Our guests don't necessarily get high with us, and you don't have to either. But it helps. Today's episode is brought to you by Bitcoin.
1: The plebs coin.
0: So without further ado, let's launch our inaugural episode with the one, the only, Mr. Brandon Quittem.
1: Hold on, are we there. We there we go. I'm on. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so if you're just tuning in, we were talking with Brandon about a different strains of weed and how they're made, um, which kind of perfectly leads into this inaugural episode of High Hash Rate with myself, Dan, and Mike. And no, 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 listen,
0: listen, listen. Here's what's gonna listen. happen. I will, I will deliver, or we will do a take after we're done. Oh, okay. Of the opening, because. We have to talk about this. Brandon, you were speaking about, you were getting into the biology of sort of the, uh, of a particular weed. I want to hear about it.
2: Ah, yes. I was just talking about uh, a type of extraction method. Um, I know it, its name is live rosin. And how I understand this is you just extract the, the cannabis plant when it's green, or essentially you can just pull it out of the ground and do the extraction method and you make a concentrate. Whereas uh, other times you'll cure the bud first, which is like dry it slowly in a, in a proper way. Um, and that does something in the plant that makes it better as a smoke, as a smokable, but yeah, the live rosin is just like the most crystal clear high I've ever
1: experienced. Right. So when, the whole point of this show, right. was, we, we kind of devised this when we were in El Zante in February and we had gotten a hold of this bag of weed that looked like clods of like mud. It was terrible looking, but you know, you're in this small little village first week into it, you know, in this country, it's like, you take what you can get. So we're smoking this weed and it was, it was great. It was actually a lot stronger than I expected. And it was, you know, we had a we had a great conversation. We're just like, I mean, we're basically sitting around a fire, just rambling on, um, about our, you know, theories about Bitcoin and just life in general. And what was the term that, uh, I think it was you that gave that, that kind of to describe that weed sitting around like really socially like beach weed yeah
0: i'd say that that's probably yeah. the term i would use is like beach weed
1: right so it's like normally i get home and i eat an edible or i, I smoke you know some flour or whatever i get a hold of and it's just, it's really powerful these days but this was almost like a, a throwback to just like a, a social communal high <laughs> that we were getting and it was great it was, it was a really good time
0: interesting that you can sort of uh take an experience from a particular type of like associated with a, with a particular type of weed, you know?
1: Right. Exactly. I mean, like when I, I guess I first started smoking, it was like a red rocks at like jam band music festivals and every, you know, it was like re- it was a great time. Everybody's sitting around before in the lot before the show, you know, just shooting the shit, getting to know each other. And now it seems more like, at least in my experience, that a lot of the weed that we consume is more, uh, Introspective, kind of more of an individual experience. But maybe that's just my like evolution.
2: I make two interesting points there. One, yeah, we've we've really, really gotten a hold of the cannabis plant and bred it to our liking, right? If you sure. if you rewind a few thousand years, humans have always, at least through archaeological records, we always see a cannabis plant and humans together, right? So we've more or less co-evolved with this plant for as long back as we can find. And through that process, we used it for various different things. Um, But to my point, we've selectively bred it, right? It's artificial selection. Just like we took a wild bull and turned it into a docile cow for our our steaks. um, We did the same thing with the cannabis plant. And um, speaking of potency, right? Like our parents smoked weed that was maybe 5% THC. And they'd be stoked if they found it at 5%. And they, they would tell all their friends about it right? It would be a big deal. Now you can go to the, the cannabis store, let's say in California, and maybe it's 30 or 35% THC, uh, or you can buy an extract, right? A, a concentrated process and it's 90 plus percent THC. And so to the question of is, is the, you know, did the weed change in our 10 years or, or whatever timeframe we're looking at, or are we just consuming way more THC? And so it sort of puts us in a more introspective state right? Because if you think about just yeah. having just a tiny totally. little bit, I think it's easy to be social. If you have too much, yeah, For sure. you're probably on your back. For sure.
1: Yeah, I think, thinking back to the first time I smoked uh, dabs, you know, whatever you want to call it, right? And somebody's like, you know, clear the clear the pipe. And I did. And, you know, I was at a, you know, it was like a little social gathering. We were watching a UFC fight. And next thing I know, I'm so just beyond my comfort level stoned. Um all I could, you know, all I can do is like you just no matter what somebody says, you just smile and kind of laugh and just nod. Like that's all you, and I was living my life like five minutes at a time. Just get through this next five minutes. Act just get normal then next five minutes. I'm a normal yeah, right? person. I'm acting normal. How are you? I'm acting normal. <laughs> I'm Mr. Normal. Yeah, exactly. So that one is not something I do too often, but um, I can, you know, I see the meme like you know, Lucky Charms would kill a peasant from thirteen hundred. It's just so much sugar, so much flavor. It's like one of those hits of dabs, like what that would do to the to the to the people at Woodstock, right? Like that would be worse than the brown acid.
0: Do you, Do you think there's like a correlation between uh, sort of po- potency of weed and the um, like a social awakening?
1: Definitely. definitely can't hurt
2: It's a good question i mean i'm of two minds like i think we can be used for many different purposes right i I find it as like an intellectual uh creative flowy kind of state which i find really nice in the evening i did all my work done for the day i have a little bit of me time um and so that that works really well for me but if you want to have you know, I would have probably consume a little bit more in that setting. But if you're in a social setting, you don't want to consume very much. And I think that's also a reasonable situation to use cannabis, right? Like as a conversation, bonding. Mm-hmm. Let's just sure. let's just go off on a tangent together. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think the point I'm trying to make is depending on the use case, maybe different different dosages make more sense. But as a as a species level or as a civilization level, would increasing cannabis change a society? Uh, I think that's an interesting question right a very large percentage of people at least in the United States consume cannabis um, and so what does that do to a society right I don't really have strong opinions here but it has to have some effect it, it's you know it's part of culture right.
1: I mean so you're I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the stone ape theory right so of course if, I mean there's a lot there's a lot more to it right but the it's, it's essentially that when the primates were coming out of the bush as the changing environment, they were experimenting with new food sources. And one of those food sources, whether purpose, you know, inadvertently or not, right, was uh, psilocybin mushrooms. And part of the theory is that the psilocybin created a sense of more sense of an empathy or a connection with the environment, and with each other that may have assisted, uh, you know, human beings, Homo sapiens, whatever, as coming together as a civilization, um, and kind of bond bonding in that sense. So if you, uh, you know, if you believe in that theory or you you know, buy into it, weed is a very similar, at least in some people, at least in my experience has like a similar effect of kind of creating that wider, you're part of something bigger, you're more connected to your, your community, to the earth, to the, you know, we're all one, this big ecosystem. So in that sense. I think it definitely could have that effect.
2: Yeah, I agree. And one other puzzle piece to the stone ape theory is that if we look throughout our archaeological records, there's an unexplained period where our brain grows really fast in a short period of time. And so scientists have to say, well, what what caused this massive transformation, change in diet, this and that. We know that climate was changing at the time. And so our ancestors were moving out of the trees and onto the savannah. Most likely eating ungulates, uh, deer or elk or something like that, caribou. So they'd be stalking uh, the prey. And just so happened, psilocybin mushrooms grow out of the the primary food source that one would consume, dung. And so they undoubtedly ran into it. And then again, yeah, you're hungry. You know, you find your buddy, the most daring friend in your group. Hey, Dale, dude, I dare you. And you got to eat that mushroom. Uh, Right. And hopefully Dale doesn't die. And turns out Dale. Dale, Dale might have died, but he came back to life with all these new ideas. <laughs> and right then you can see how it could form a relationship with humans. And it, obviously I, I made it sound like a rosy story, but right. it's probably more like a million years of survival right. and right. Re, you know integrating a new food source and over time um, it could have made a change. And what we know is psilocybin changes our uh, neofrontal cortex. That's the primary part that activates. And that's the part that grew. Uh, we know it's neurogenesis. It creates neurogenesis of growing new brain cells. Um, and that new part of the brain is also associated with language and our higher reasoning centers. And so that, that is sort of the transition period between our uh, other homos, uh, genus Homo um, competitors at the time versus us, right? We had the ability to use language, which is abstraction. Our whole world is made out of language now. It's how we do all our technology. It's how we cooperate. Um, in fact, we would need language in order to overcome Dunbar's number, to cooperate with a group of more than let's say 150. And how did we overcome all the other uh, you know, Neanderthals, Homo erectus, et cetera? Uh, because we could form larger groups, right? If there's a thousand of us and a hundred of you, the thousand are obviously going to win, even though the Neanderthals were bigger, stronger, more hardy, more capable physical specimens. We overcame them um, again from the neofrontal cortex. Right. You can chase it back there. Now, was it fire Did we unlock fire and start cooking food, unlocking mm-hmm. more fatty acids? Uh, which our brain needs is it something that gave us uh just more food in general or more leisure time uh, because we had that extra food to then simulate things i don't know it's very fun to think about i forgot where we, we were going with this though that's we're, that happens we're all over the
0: place. place yeah man yeah. it's fine this is we're grooving so um, yeah go, i had a question yeah. um i had some i had a question go ahead uh, just about um because i was just interested do you have like a biology background all right.
2: No, no. I took a single biology class in college.
0: Me too. Um. And I was fascinated yeah. by biology. I got immediately fascinated. But it sounds like you you really know your shit with biology. Like you're really interested.
1: Yeah. What what what's the rabbit hole of this, you know.
2: <laughs> Since a very young age. I lived in just a grew up in a normal suburb uh, of Minneapolis. And I spent all summers outside. My parents had a garden and then I said, Oh, I wanna grow the garden. And I probably was just trampling their garden. So they said, fine, here's a little corner, this is for you. And I took it very seriously. I was probably five years old, I don't know, around there. And I just found it amazing that I could go outside every day, put a seed in the ground, watch it grow and then eat it later. And hmm, yeah. I think there's something about like innate connection. Like I think biology, I think we're actually very uh, close. We should be very close to our environment mm-hmm. And spending more time outside and i think that's good for us but in modern times we're sort of sheltered inside mm-hmm. and so i think my relationship stems from that where it just feels good to be connected to nature um your stress levels go down you're more calm you're more focused you can sleep better everything's just better out there and i think i use it i use nature like that today as well where i use my analytical mind way too much staring at the computer um, at work with you two gentlemen or among other things. And so then I finish work and I go out in the woods or I, or I uh, garden or I try to spend more time outside just to sort of balance it out. Um, and so I think that's where it stemmed from. And then I'm just a perpetual rabbit hole dweller. And so in adulthood, you just find one little thing, you go down there. Totally. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Just an excited nerd.
1: So speaking of that, speaking of rabbit holes, right. Your recent, um, you wrote a piece, uh, I don't know when it came out in the past few months called, uh, about Bitcoin being a pioneer species. Um, and if you, you just did a recent podcast, I think with Robert Reed love and you guys talked about that quite a bit, um, which I was, I thought it was a fantastic episode, by the way. Um, I've I been agree, following yeah. you on Definitely. social media for, I don't know, maybe two years or so. So it's, it's cool to finally work with you and have, have this chance to talk to you. And, uh, I really also enjoyed your fourth turning episode with uh, Peter McCormick. So I'd like to dive into a little bit of some of each of those things, but I guess we'll start by just kind of giving you a chance to give a high-level overview of uh, the the pioneer species uh, thesis that you kind of come up with.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And a uh, quick background. So the point of this essay, is to sort of frame up why are we even going to talk about such a unlikely combination of biology and Bitcoin. Uh, I think using analogies is a useful way to understand Bitcoin. It's a really complicated thing. You can come at it from all these different angles. And that's just me sort of ramming an interest I have next to Bitcoin and seeing what interesting insights come out. And I think a lot of people resonate with the ideas again because I think we intuit biology really well. And so putting things in those terms sort of makes sense uh, to, to most people, whereas maybe finance or uh, some sort of software or system distributed architecture doesn't in, intuitively make sense. And so I think that's why the analogy makes sense. Um, this piece was about energy and it's I wrote it because I'm frustrated by all the nonsense around proof of work and energy consumption, and that's a whole rabbit hole in and of itself, you, you start going down that rabbit hole, and I'm still a neophyte, but what you find is that the mainstream uh, pundits have no idea what they're talking about, and especially the, the people on the environmentalist side, which they have good intentions, but they don't know what they're talking about, and so that leads people astray. That leads Germany to having, um, you know, no energy and being reliant on Putin for that because they got rid of all their nuclear plants in order to go green, which is just nonsense. And so, I guess having the wrong opinion about energy really matters. There are human costs to having uh, low amounts of energy. Um, just for example, let's say in the United States, you might pay five to eight cents kilowatt hour for your energy. In random country in Africa, you might pay three or four times that amount. Right. And energy is sort of like a master commodity. And everything downstream, everything is downstream of energy from your heating, your cooling, your food, your transportation, your building, what products you can create. Are you relying on imports because you don't have enough cheap energy to build things? Right. And so it really hamstrings countries. And GDP is directly correlated with energy consumption. So totally. the more energy you have, the more you can produce. Uh, all that is background to say, what is a pioneer species? A pioneer species is a unique type of species that's role in ecology is to colonize a dead zone and sort of rebootstrap the process of, of life. And so the famous example is an island off of the coast of, I think, Iceland. Uh, Sutterby or something, a volcanic island erupts, kills all the life on the planet. And then the question becomes, is is that just a volcanic rock from now on or will life return and enter the pioneer species? So oftentimes they're a lichen, which is a symbiosis between a fungus and a plant, uh, an algae. Uh, other times it might be a, some sort it might be distributed by a seed so a bird eats something and poops on an island or maybe it's some sort of seed that flows in the ocean and just by chance lands on this place and they're they're particularly suited for decomposing that rock with no competition and so they thrive early on and over uh, many many years they start to bootstrap the process of life the fungus burrows into the rock and starts decomposing the the, the rocky material the algae, portion of the symbiosis converts sunlight and carbon dioxide from air into into fats and sugars food and they kind of trade food uh, in that sort of situation and then over time it starts to create soil and that allows other organisms to come and then more complex life comes and then eventually it becomes this uh, blooming ecosystem a peak ecosystem uh, in that location and at that point the Uh, Pioneer species actually gets kicked out because they're they're no longer competitive in in a a rich soil ecosystem. And the analogy here is that Bitcoin miners are like the pioneer species. So they will go directly to an energy source. And let's say it's a remote hydro um, in the middle of nowhere and no people are there. Well, you can go there and build a dam, but that's very expensive. Um, So, sort of, Bitcoin miners unlock the economic viability of an energy asset because they're a consumer of energy. Uh, They'll buy the energy. So you place them down, they land in the desolate rock or this remote hydro um, that bootstraps a good viable business of producing energy because you have a customer. And then over time, that that essentially allows you to monetize the energy assets so that you can build out the transportation, uh, which is very expensive, like high voltage lines to move the energy to where your customers might be. And so it kind of buys you a few years to to bootstrap energy asset. And then now you have a a nice energy asset that wasn't there before. You can do things with that. Maybe it's a manufacturing hub, maybe it's powering houses, maybe it's unlimited, unlimited options. And so that essentially bootstraps human civilization now there's cheap energy, you know, you, you grow into uh, an oasis of life that wasn't there prior. And if you zoom way out on the planet, we have all these opportunities for energy. And uh, you can picture Bitcoin miners going to the low cost energy assets, which creates a hub of prosperity. And again, once it becomes a, a fully functioning civilization or city or whatever you want to call it, uh, the, the energy costs or sorry, the Bitcoin miners can no longer afford the high energy costs, the retail energy costs, which is like two or three X wholesale. So the Bitcoin miners, those machines move to, again, another low cost energy source. And so they're just seeding prosperity everywhere you go. Um, And that's just one way to think of Bitcoin miners uh, as a species level. Um, And what I view the future will be because of that sort of symbiosis.
1: Right. So one way to think about energy right is like it's not that we don't have enough energy it's not that we don't have enough energy sources or enough oil or enough so you know whatever right it's that we are just learning now how to harness energy efficiently we're not wasting like we just have to produce so much energy And i think you mentioned that in your piece like we have to overproduce energy but what we're one of the things that we really have to figure out is how to not waste energy how to produce as much as we need maybe monetize the rest somehow in a in a way that's you know you could transfer that value somewhere else in the world maybe to spark more um more of those pioneer species right they can take some of that wealth kind of escape where they're at and go start anew
2: yeah totally and i I think an interesting or under a miss let's see I don't know, not a lot of people know, (laughs) that's an easy way to say that, is that we must overproduce energy because we have to prepare for the the most energy intensive day of the year. Let's say mid-January when it's freezing cold Mm -hmm. and everybody is heating their house, um, that consumes about two or three times the amount of energy as an average day, let's say in the springtime when we're not consuming energy, right? So the whole year there's this extra buffer of energy and then you can say some types of energy assets are flexible. So like you can turn, ramp them up or ramp them down based on our needs. But the, the net effect here is that there's always a mismatch between supply and demand of energy. And then you say, well, how, what do we do with that extra? And you said, how do we be more efficient, right? And Bitcoin miners are a, a unique energy consumer because they're flexible. So they can turn on and consume energy when there's extra and turn off very quickly if if consumers need the energy, so they're just like a sponge; they can just take the excess energy and monetize it, um, and that makes all the economics of energy production far far better for our species, which will spur more investment in energy assets, uh, especially it's very especially helpful with renewables, which are uh, intermittent sources of demand. So you need an intermittent source of supply to sort of match their curve, um, and so those two kind of fit together
1: nicely. So, it it. At least my interpretation of it is it, it almost seems like you're kind of talking about the, the individual miners and their, the individual like processes that might, they might start. And I think a lot of times we think of in Bitcoin, right, as like the, it's the journey of the individual, but a lot of individual actors with aligned incentives can have a big impact um, and potentially a positive impact. Uh, on society as a whole and how how do you think about like that aggregate um i guess the word i'm looking for is uh if you know effect on society or on our global energy use
2: yeah i I absolutely love this question
1: um why because i get to dunk
2: on keynesian and keynesian economics um so at the (laughs) long so there's this idea in the central planner types, uh, modern economic uh, professors, let's say, or economic thought leaders of the day, um, people in the, in the uh, federal bank as well, or uh, Federal Reserve as well. They believe that order emerges in society because the planners create order. They steer society with these elegant policies, and those elegant policies direct all our behavior into this beautiful source of order. Um, But that's just not true. Order emerges in society through individuals acting in their own best interest. We all go do our own thing based on our incentives locally and now globally with the internet, right? We're sort of all a meta species now with how information flows. (laughs) and global resources, et cetera. Uh, But order emerges simply because we're all acting and it creates a complex system. And complex systems have feedback loops and biases and processes and and they move directions. And in that order does emerge. And the the central planner would like to reduce uh, the complex system that is society or economy down to these silly little math equations and say that inflation is 8.5%. Um, and that if we increased interest rates by 0.5%, we'll steer the ship. Um, it's like a monkey with a stick in the mud, right. Talking to Plato or something like that. Like it, it's just fundamentally like orders of magnitude off in, in the complexity scale. Um, whereas Bitcoin sort of fits in as that, uh, complex emergent system. It's just a simple, uh, simple set of rules, and that simple set of rules interacts with this complex system we call humanity. And since the rules don't change, the complex system can't, you know, can't affect the rules. So instead, the complex system has to adapt to this immovable object that we call Bitcoin, right? It tells time. It, it tells us a balance. It serves as a money. It networks our species mm. through the abstraction from from uh, the Stone date theory, uh, part of our brain, neofrontal cortex, and. Now, now that we're adapting to this movable object, right, we're the only ones that, that have the ability to change. And so through that process, it allows humanity to cooperate better because the rules of the game don't change, right? We can play this long-term iterated game next to this immovable object, which just which essentially means we can cooperate better as a species because we have this like source of simple simple order in this complex system. Um, and that type of perspective on a monetary network would be so foreign to the central planner types, but I think that's closer to what reality actually is. And that that forces us to give up control, to think top down and emergent instead of, or sorry, think bottom up and emergent instead of top down. Um, but those types of systems are actually resilient, and that's why any of that uh, ridiculous rant would matter is that it become it creates a monetary system. Um, that might be volatile short-term, right? You can't steer it as much. It sort of ebbs and flows with society. Um, but that's more of a natural process. And that, that process can uh, handle external shocks to it. And it can survive long-term. And this, this parallels with money and, and also with biology, where you might have like a, a fiat food field, right? Like mainstream mass agriculture, it's really like a science experiment. There's like inputs and outputs, and it's super mathematical and scalable and efficient. But if all of a sudden one biological organism evolves to eat that one single monocrop, the whole system's wiped out, right? It happened with bananas like 50 years ago. The entire world was growing the same banana, and then Panama disease or something like that it was a fungus, and it ate all the it killed all the bananas worldwide. It caused a huge famine. Um, so it's, it's efficient, but it's, uh, extremely, extremely, uh, fragile. And then you have, um, an old growth forest. It's an emergent process. There's incredible complexity, all this competition, iterated growth over many periods of time. And that can survive pretty much anything because it's a complex system and it's, it's adapted for that. But if you wanted to, uh, grow trees to make furniture, letting a forest grow organically would be super inefficient, but. You get rid of efficiency and you gain resiliency. Bitcoin's the same way in fiat. Fiat is the the monocrop, right? It's super efficient. It's super uh, industrial and scalable and all these things, but it's also so inflexible. And so the slightest shock in a way breaks the whole system, right? In a Bitcoin system, you don't have... Uh, as much stability short-term, the price is more volatile because that's the system reacting to reality next to it where fiat is sort of a distortion between reality. And so the Bitcoin system, the price will be volatile but there will not be systemic collapse because constantly it's refreshing, renewing the system clearing out bad actors and, and moving capital to good actors. And so I think that's a better system for humanity to base ourselves around um, the organic system, the, the networked organism that we might call Bitcoin. Can I, so, can I,
0: can I yeah. a tweet that I just thought of after uh, everything that you just said? <laughs> Would you like to hear a tweet? Let's hear it. All right the tweet is bitcoin is the gravity of the monetary system
1: it's the mass right have you Ooh. uh have you read have you read carlo rovelli uh order of time i have not. so it's really Car- carlo rovelli he kind of and if you guys have read the bitcoin is time piece by Gigi, uh i think he i don't know if he mentions it in the piece or he mentioned it maybe on twitter or something that this book was like a big one of the bigger influences on him writing that. Right. So Carlo Rovelli kind of argues in a way that time's not real. So what he means by that is if you're, you know, depending on where you're at in the universe, whether you're on top or whether you're on top of a mountain or down by the sea level, time is different everywhere. So in all those places, even though, you know, maybe very unnoticeably to the average person, but, it's different. So his argument that there's no capital T time, time is relative. And the only way you can measure anything is by having, you know, perspective, you have a, you know, a center point and then a, a perspective from that object that you're measuring. So that's the only real objective truth is your perspective. And then everything you're measuring from either yourself, your ego, or if you're talking about two inert things, you know, a planet and a star, for example. So, Bitcoin is kind of like that, you you know, it's, we all have our own unique perspectives. We're all, we all have our own egos. We all have our own life experiences, but Bitcoin is kind of that centering thing that we can all, okay, we have our different perspectives. We can all agree on the consensus here on these rules. And that's, you know, it's, the function has been served by religion in the past or community organizations or your tribe. Hmm, But now it's something we have, you know, no matter where you're at in the world, we're in a global society now. And having that centering um, consensus rules that we can all agree on, whether it's about the time, the blocks, you know, which block we're at, or the value, um, it kind of functions that same way. So like, you know, the energy form is one aspect of it, but then you just take the, the meme itself of Bitcoin and how we can all understand that. And that kind of brings us together as or potentially could bring us together as a you know Species, humanity
0: of course, yeah yeah. it's the one it's the one thing we all agree on it's the one thing that we can we can all agree on globally is the fucking blockchain and it's right? the
1: one thing even if you don't agree with it it doesn't matter because it's still true so it's so still, it's still, the rules are still math you can be it you can dissent all you want but doesn't right exactly things.
0: right
2: yeah, Nick Zabo um, referenced this topic more or less in his term social scalability, right? He would consider uh, constants in society like we agree on time or we agree on money or we agree on uh, legal property rights or uh, these different things he would call uh, tools that increase our social scalability, meaning like constants that allow us to spend time on other things, essentially increase cooperation, grow the size of our ability to cooperate from, let's say, 150 to a, a nation or something bigger. Um, and that, that's absolutely true, right? And then you mentioned Bitcoin's cultural element, because it's not just a monetary ruler, right? It, it sort of represents something in culture today. We're we're in a period of low trust and poor economic outcomes for most people. Mm -hmm. And so it leads people to seek for an alternative, right? So from a society level, you could say Satoshi uh, dropping this artifact we call Bitcoin onto the scene was in response to how bad the environment was, right? And all the people working on it. Um, I think if all the economic stuff was going great, we wouldn't have made Bitcoin because you wouldn't have needed it. Right. And so I think that's kind of an interesting uh, response mechanism. And then the the final point here is that technology and humans are symbiotic. We co-evolve. Right. So you create a new technology and that technology enters the world and it changes the world. Um, Let's say we automate certain jobs away. So we lose jobs because of a new technology. Well, that forces us to figure out what do we do with these people? They don't have jobs anymore. And so society responds and we try to find more productive ways. And that that sort of uh, constraint gives us creative um, direction to create something new, which, again, uh, changes society, which then changes how we behave, which literally changes us and we evolve over time. Like think about a, a society before language, how different things would be. And so, yeah, it's sort of this like dynamic spiral of creating new technology and that technology recreates us. And then Mm -hmm. a new version of us creates new technology, which then creates a new version of us uh, to infinity.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, The other, one of the other things that me and Mike could talk a lot about in some of our other, you know, BC episodes right here uh, is (sighs) memes, you know, not from the silly sense of, you know, a, a JPEG with, some font on it that makes people laugh. I mean, that's included, but the way that you kind of alluded to it earlier, you are talking about making analogies um, in in biology, right? Uh, People intuit that much easier than like complex distributed systems. And we talk a lot about how we're using, not us individually necessarily, but as a, you know, Bitcoin, Twitter, right? We're using memes to spread information really quickly. And, I think that one of the core, like the important thing about memes is that it's incentivizing through like social media, right? Like everybody's trying to get likes and retweets so that the incentives, you know, maybe that's twisted, maybe that's wrong, but it's there, but maybe we're incentivizing, we're incentivized to try to find the most efficient, condensed way to, to share an idea and share it widely. And instead of, you know, writing a bunch of text like maybe a Bible story that was teaching about morals that was passed through time as a chapter in a book. Now we're using a shared experience, whether it's a movie, a, a slap at the Oscars, something like that that is already indexed in somebody else's brain and the emotions that it evoked. And then using that to, to signal a message and find that way to share that information as much as possible. Yeah. So quickly, I think
0: what quickly it, is the right, uh, keyword. Right.
1: So I guess is, do you agree that you, these analogies, these memes are the, or how we should kind of, kind of focus our energy in, in trying to orange pill others instead of trying to read the white paper? If you don't get it, you're an idiot. No, like everybody's got a different reason to value Bitcoin or to be interested in Bitcoin. Find the meme or the story or the analogy that will work for them. And, and you really use that and hone that.
2: Yeah, it's a great, great question. And there's so many parallels to what we've been talking about today, which is awesome. So I guess, how would I start this? I think that the big transition in our entire history of what we call life, it started out, somehow evolution appears. Um, We could even call that God. It's the force that leads to life, right? It it is a self-organizing force. For some reason, life wants to create order. yeah. Yeah, physics does this, apparently. Um, and then we, we fast forward through this biological history for a long time, genetic evolution, right? It's a, it's a natural selection process of passing uh, information stored in genes to the next generation. Um, and then we create mind, right? This biological process somehow comes up with conscious mind, which is what an amazing tool that is. Um, and so now there's this explosion of, of cultural growth, but I think it sort of marks a step function difference between simply genetic evolution to mimetic evolution, right? Our ideas are now going to battle. Our ideas are are competing. And the most valuable thing now are good ideas because good ideas are tools that make our life better, Mm -hmm. right? Look at our life uh, expectancy, our quality of life, all these amazing luxuries. These all come from just good ideas. And so now there's two types of evolution, right? The, the idea warfare, which is sort of like a, a beaver's dam, right? A beaver learns how to make a dam to help its environment, an extended phenotype. A bird makes a nest, a bird weaves a nest. That's like us weaving clothes for our bodies, um, just less primitive. And so, yeah, now we're in this incredible mimetic environment. And, and then you combine that with, uh, let's say, Twitter, right? Which sort of seems like it's the central nervous system of the planet. We're all plugged into this one metabrain. And yeah, you said like there's, there's this cultural frame of reference, a slap, and now we're all on the same wavelength, right? Elon Musk takes a shit, sends out a tweet and the entire, you know, 200 million people get a cultural update in the next <laughs> like 30 minutes. That's
1: insane. Okay. <laughs> it's like we're updating software. It's like we're patching One hundred percent.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're a meta
1: species right. at this point in some yeah. ways, right?
0: It seems like I mean, the, the evolution of humans is is basically into information or into robots. Robots, right? right? Nat- it seems like now, now that I think about it, it's more of like a natural sort of occurrence. Like we die off more and more, and the fucking robots turn into us more
1: and more, right? Right. It, think about what, what's the biggest thing in the news right now, right? Like Elon Musk is trying to buy Twitter. Um, part of the problem is that social media is centralized. It's kind of like the monetary system. Who are the, the cantillionaires in social media? It's the people who control Twitter. It's the people who control Facebook. They're the ones benefiting from the rules that they set the, you know, the rules they're and they have their terms and and conditions, but they're interpreted just like everything else in the U S like justice system. It's, it's always going to be used to benefit the, the people at the top that's yeah, that, that was kind of a, a stoner rabbit hole there but <laughs>
0: yeah i mean it's very the thing that it's very the other thing
1: that the show that elon musk tweeted that people kind of thought was a shit post and it kind of was was who controls memes controls the universe if you control the narrative if you control what everybody if you know the, the hive mind what they're thinking you you do kind of control the at least our universe
0: it it sort of it makes me think of this question that I've been um, uh, sort of getting at and thinking about a lot. Um, specifically, that I see emerging, and I don't know if uh, other people see this or not, but a an emergence of like Bitcoin celebrities as a sort of mess or meme. Yeah, this is a really interesting concept. Uh, concept to me is like how like. Bitcoin is almost a new Hollywood in a way. This is what, what I'm sort of observe, observing. Maybe they, that's because I'm too plugged in, but I'm not sure. What, I'd, I'd be
1: interested to hear your guys' thoughts. I think it's definitely large enough where oh. it kind of stratifies to different classes in the, within in-groups. You know, I don't know if I would use the term Bitcoin is a new Hollywood but I think it's definitely big enough where it is now like a subset of culture and within that subset are subsets of people you know some people are celebrities because let's just face it they're they're attractive they have money they bought their way in that's that's in every subculture some people are celebrities because of the amount of energy and work they put into bitcoin and mm-hmm. so some people respect something more than others but it's de- it's definitely this the subset within a subset. And I think that we are now, Bitcoin is now big enough that we would have these, what you would call celebrities or adjacent celebrities for sure.
2: Yeah. I think it's pretty uh, to be expected, right? In any niche, any social club, any social movement, any right. interest forms culture around it. And then you have snobbery and then you have the curmudgeons and then you have the progressives in that culture. And I just think that we can't really escape the fact that we're tribal primates and we're just now tribal primates connected on a meta brain where we uh, information now knows no distance or knows no time and that totally messes with us, I would say. And I think the juxtaposition with Bitcoin is that we like to think of Bitcoin with such such high ideals, um, excuse the pun. But we, we like to think of it as something so noble and just, and we're all doing well, and we're all here for the right reasons and proof of work. Right. And right. we have all these tropes. And I think they're, to a large extent, true. But that clashes really hard when we see like the ugly side of human tribalism, which is hero worship and outsourcing our thinking and you know, demonstrating our, our, our position with signaling and anti-signaling, right? We're all guilty of this. That's, that's why people complain on Twitter. Right. Um, but then you might say, why are the Bitcoin people so crazy about it? Can it just be a money? Can it just be a, a software project, mm-hmm. right? Silicon Valley is like, just technology. And the Wall Street bros is like, it's just a stock ticker, it's just an asset. And I think there's a, a large miss there because back to our previous point, it's emerged at a point in human history when it's needed and wanted, uh, which is why it grows so hard and so fast. Mm-hmm. Right, Bitcoin's inefficient. It's kind of ugly. It's a it's a gross Frankenstein piece of software that somehow uh, pulls a rabbit out of a hat and creates digital scarcity. That's amazing, but it's not like this beautiful thing. It just somehow it works and it won't die. And and so point being that the, re- the reason why it's it's so uh, it grows so fast is because we want it and we need it and it's and it's right for humans right now. And so. Yeah, it's just us trying to relate to this thing and
1: oh man, when the, when the student is ready, the master appears. Definitely. Yeah. And I think one more, like point back to the, um, to the meme aspect is that now we're all interacting with each other digitally a lot more than we ever did, but at least pre COVID, right? Like people are on Twitter or social media. Now the metaverse is growing. So that's only, it's only going to get more to the point where we're interacting mostly digitally, but I think there's a, you lose human communication loses a lot of nuance, right? Cause you stop necessarily seeing body language, you stop seeing the, the skin color or knowing the language or the culture that the person behind the avatar, um, that experience that formed them. And one of the things that I'm kind of thinking I'm noticing about memes is it's kind of taxonomizing people into like these archetypes. Like you've got, based on the meme you share and the reactions you get from somebody based on that meme, you can tell like, is it a Karen? Is it a, you know, bad guy, whatever, you know, what, you know the old name of the guy yeah. with the joint and he's like a, he's a prick or whatever. And you, had and you like could do it quickly. Guy, you could Greg. tell it quickly.
0: That's the thing. You could totally right. tell
1: that message so, so quickly. You, so when people say, you know, I'm triggering libs or I'm, you know, I'm shit posting or whatever, what you're really doing is you're sending out a signal and you're in, based on how everybody on your followers receives your tweet, how they react, you know, it's like, Oh, this person's woke. Or this person's based or this person's great Right. And, <laughs> and you kind of like, you can kind of separate. And once you know what, archetype that person fits into, you know, the memes that you can send them that they're going to react positively to. So like, you know, you go on Twitter spaces, then you might have somebody from Tonga talking to somebody from Asia, talking to somebody from Nigeria. And then you got a guy from Toledo, Ohio in there. And you got like a finance guy from London. You got all these people and they have nothing in common except Bitcoin. And the really popular memes that they can like spout off to each other. And it's just like this way to like quickly communicate, even if you don't have sophisticated like technology to to do translations for you. You can just communicate off of images, memes, and and based on the archetype of what you've kind of inferred from somebody's behavior.
0: Can can I say another tweet that I just thought of?
1: Yeah, let's go. All right, here we go. <laughs> um, You're seeing tweets before they go out, folks.
0: This is it. Here it is. Yeah. Here on high hash rate. Um, <laughs> um, the tweet is uh, Bitcoin is social gravity as well.
1: Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. When somebody uh, acts.
0: So yeah, it's like something we could all agree on. It's the gravity of the monetary system and it's the gravity of the social layer as well.
1: Right. And you get like to yeah, when you be hum when you get humbled, right? It like drags you back down to earth, reminds you that don't, don't trade Bitcoin on leverage.
2: And Dan, your, your last point on memes was very elegant. I really like what you were talking about there. And the way I'm trying to process this in my head right now is like, okay, why did these weird cultural um, information communication technology norms occur? right they're in response to how humans are interfacing with the medium right of the internet and so it's it, what i'm what i'm drawn to often is evolutionary biology like why do we respond that way and to me it seems like a a mechanism it's like a defense mechanism to allow us to Actually, deal with the fact that we're communicating with so many people every day, totally, without our brains exploding, right? So we have to categorize people and shortcut and memetics and dance quick. We don't have time. Blah blah blah. We're just like plugged into the matrix in a way, whereas we're used to only being able to communicate with hundred people, one hundred fifty people, and that's all our social bonds. And yeah. so. Our, our fears, our hopes, our desires, all that's forged in a time when we're in a small kin group trying to survive. And so, you know, <laughs> We get jealous, right? You see your neighbor on the Savannah and he's killing more buffaloes than you. And you're like, shit, I wish I was killing as many buffaloes as Dan. And you feel bad and that's a good mechanism because then you're going to go practice your spear throwing and you'll beat Dan next week in the buffalo hunt, right? Right. But if you extrapolate that to modern times, you're connected to infinity people. They're giving you this filtered version of themselves online. We feel the same jealousy, but it's not the same. Like our, 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 our hardware betrays us right? We feel bad for that when we really shouldn't, we know we shouldn't, but our body can't distinguish between that and and Dan, the Buffalo slayer. Right. So yeah, it's just us yeah. trying to deal with this meta brain.
1: And you, and you, like, you know, you said defense mechanism, right? So it's, there's also a defense mechanism and we all know that we're being monitored by the man, by big brother. I mean, we all know if we're on Twitter, if we're using Amazon, we're being monitored. So what are we doing? Right. We're using, or at least the, I think the kind of The feeling is that we're being monitored, not by necessarily a conscious person, but by the robots they've programmed. But we know that we're, we know how to beat those robots, right? We know there's like nuances and things, the human interaction that they can't pick up on. So I think that's where a lot of the irony is coming from. I think a lot of people are, are making ironic memes and ironic jokes and ironic posts because if i make that post and you read it brandon or you read it mike you know what i'm really saying but big brother or whoever's watching down reason like oh i love inflation this is exactly what i wanted to wake up to today 8.5% cpi like this is awesome right you know we everybody knows that that's sarcasm but if you just read the text you're a you know a bot right it's like this person's happy about inflation so it's like there's the way we're we're communicating is is really it's almost like Tor, right? Like you, you, everything's encrypted. Nobody understands it except for the person who's supposed to understand it.
0: Brandon, I want to be respectful of your time. It's uh, It's been an hour. Are you, you want to keep going or you, you what's up?
2: Let's go another 10, 15 minutes. Does that work? Uh, yeah.
0: It's works for us. Works for me too. Works perfectly. for us. Awesome. Cool.
2: Um, um, on that point, or oh, you have something, Michael?
0: No, no. I was going to say, oh, there you go. <laughs>
2: Oh, okay. Um, what, what that made me think about is like, how do, we, how do we deal with an increasingly censored and centralized state or apparatus that controls information, right? It seems like information is increasingly centralized. And I think Bitcoin, Tor, other tools are sort of an attempt to push back against that force, but it's, it seems like it's a very large force going in that direction. And then you might say, OK, if we're spied on all communication is, is, is um, no longer private, then how does society change? Because we're all going to self-censor and that's going to make us uh, change our what we how we communicate and how we communicate will actually change how we think. And so in a way, you're actually changing people on a very deep level and changing their opinions simply by the fact that now everybody knows that everything you say is tracked.
1: Right, like, the, like what—that's quantum physics, right? Like, matter is different in a different state when it's being observed. I mean, that's like humans. The, the one of the big controversies, right, when they're talking about Will Smith and Chris Rock slaps, so they're like, that was staged, it was scripted. And my—I think I had a tweet about it. The like point was, it doesn't have to be staged and scripted because everybody knows they're being watched, and everybody behaves in a way that they know is going to create the most buzz. So, I mean, Will Smith didn't have to be scripted to go up and slap Chris Rock that whole situation just was perfect because people act differently when they're being observed and they they're performing. It's pageantry. A lot of it's pageantry.
0: That's a great point. That's an excellent point. Cause I, you know what I realized is that as soon as we turn this recording on, you know, you could sort of feel it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You could sort, you, you could feel the change between the two dominions of not being recorded to being recorded. Yeah. And you, it, it changes your demeanor. It changes your, and especially something like Zoom, where you can observe each person and you can observe yourself. You just uh, you start to watch yourself more. It's interesting, it's a sort of interesting dynamic after being recorded.
2: Absolutely, and another another point on um, dealing with the panopticon state yeah. is how do we how do we know what happened in the past happened in the past, right? Yes. Like it. The, the people are the guardians of information, let's say, our lovely media. They conveniently edit things that they that no longer is fashionable or makes them look bad or for other more nefarious purposes, memory holding parts of history. And that's a really, really challenging thing because we might remember something that occurred, but if there's no digital representation of it, no one in the future is going to believe us about it unless you were there. And even still... That's probably enough to squelch it out and so we do need a way to track information that that doesn't mess with us orwell has a quote where it's like he owns the past controls the present right if you control the history if you control the facts then you know we sort of act based on our recent history so control the past control the present and if you control the present you also control the future Right. So simply managing facts throughout history is enough to steer society in a, in a way that we might not want to go. And so, OK, tying this to Bitcoin, the, the work chain, the time chain, the, the longest, most work chain, uh, that is the best thing we have as a species in order to preserve something uh, with a timestamp throughout history, right? So we can hash things to it. We can send in op return codes to literally send text messages into the chain. And, you know, this is sort of the, the idea that uh, Peter, uh, blanking on his name now, essentially had an idea where you could put a message in the blockchain and we could save this thing as like an encyclopedia. Um, I don't know the implementation, but it seems like as we go forward, that needs to exist. We need to get really good at it to make sure that the most important things are remembered. Yes. And maybe, maybe the ledger is the only most important thing, or maybe that's the first most important thing in order to build this immutable time chain.
1: Uh, Either way, we need that. (laughs) The way I see it is it's similar to carbon dating, right? When you try to look at a tree or some other object and you use the, the radio, what, I don't know. I'm going to use the wrong words here. I'm going to butcher this. So if you're a science guy, I apologize, but the decay of, the carbon in the, in the object, right? Like it, it can only decay so much. The half-life is, is known. So based on those measurements, you can say, "Ah, oh, this tree is 10,000 years old or this rock is 10,000 years old. That I think is what Bitcoin gives us for looking back at humanity. You can't necessarily trust the written history, but you can look at the amount of energy. It's money. You're basically getting a, a history going back to 2009 at least of what humans valued what how much energy were they willing to uh, put into defending this meme this bitcoin this ideology and you can look at that throughout that difficulty history you, we have ways to test the age and the the reality of our physical surroundings but that our ideas our culture are kind of they're almost like the digital realm, right? Like they're not really something that you can physically touch or measure, but there's some sort of tether to the physical world. And that's the amount of energy we put into defending them.
2: That's how I look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And your comment, which was that, um, we can tell a lot about a species based on what, what amount of energy they, they're either able to harness or they're willing to harness, uh, you know, spend, I should say, on the Bitcoin network. I think that's fascinating. So imagine a time in the future where an alien race uh, enters our solar system. And one way they might demonstrate, you know, right, humans or organisms size each other up. Are they stronger than us? Are we more advanced than them? Right, there's sort of that, that saber rattling. And one way they might demonstrate their superiority is to show us how much accumulated work they have on their chain right you know, if they can show us their chain it says wow they they're a type two civilization based on their their chains work um we have no chance right we're ants next to the, the humans in this situation um i don't know i think that's like an interesting metric for sure yeah
1: How much like work a, does your civilization like a, like a have? Like a <laughs> cosmic dick a cosmic dick measuring contest <laughs> yeah, that's right that would be proof of stake proof of work is you actually can affect it right yeah, Prove of yeah, work would be like an
2: antler contest. To, for, there you go. From the right. Lowry analogy. Right. Right? <laughs> Who's going to yeah. kick whose ass? That's pretty much right. what you're trying to figure out.
1: Totally. Mike, you, you want to close it out with some, with some thoughts? Should, or yeah, some I'm, I'm looking I'm looking at
0: yeah. what I should close it out with. Um, okay, while you're looking, I
2: got to tease you for a second. It feels like the whole purpose of the show is so that Michael Oceans can get Twitter fodder and he just live tweets during the, during the episode. Is that what this is? Am I being farmed for? This is like for this is tweets?
1: like 1990s New York City when the comedians that worked on Saturday Night Live would go listen to the open mics and they would just steal all the jokes from the comedians. Oh it, really? Does it, that, that's Brandon, amazing. That's the point of this podcast. Brandon, does it, does it feel like still, that? No, no, he's, I'm totally he's joking. Teasing. Oh shit! <laughs> you're paranoid. I was Mike. like, you damn, get...
2: you're looking way too serious. I'm totally yeah, I was about.
0: like, oh shit, so like fuck, I didn't, I didn't realize. That. <laughs> um no i don't think so. <laughs> i think yeah. I just, no, that's great I, I just enjoyed so much you know talking you know what happens in the in my past i'm getting high i'm talking to fucking bitcoiners we're all talking about bitcoin we end up going down some sort of interesting thread and i'm like you know that's probably an interesting idea to have a, a show where we all bitcoiners get together and try to recreate these good conversations you know what i mean
1: totally yeah totally so agreed
0: and it's hard. Yeah, it's, I think- it's, believe me, it's fucking tough because I, 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 in those situations, I'm like, I feel like everything is much more elegant. You know, I, we're not recording. I'm not thinking about how I look and fucking sound. You know, it's like you, you obviously have the freedom of that, you know.
2: yeah it's a good point though right like the goal is to capture the magic the the serendipity that occurs and like the perfect conversation at the right time and with Mm. the right person in the right state of mind magic happens poetry it's music right you're trying to capture that i think this is about as good as you can get in the modern times right and some will be hits and some will be misses will be dead spots you'll 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 ride the lightning for part of it um and try to overcome the camera and maybe maybe it's a process of getting comfortable in this situation.
0: Do you think that you've overcome the camera?
2: No, definitely not.
0: Hmm. Uh,
2: what, what, I, I think a... I'm more comfortable on camera than I used to be just due to sure. doing it more and more, but there's still an air of performance. What about an the, air of ego? And, and there's also the like, air What about I'm the McCormick
0: podcast? Cause it was recorded in like three different ways. Oh, lots of cameras in the room. Yeah. You're on set. Are you, do you feel like you're having an honest conversation or is it completely like to the business or like where? Yeah, it's a good question.
1: I think a good Um, podcast host probably does a good job. And I think Peter does a good job of it, of like slowly warming you into the conversation because I think when you first, first start the recording, right. Like there's nerves or like, how do I, you know, you're not comfortable, but, as it goes on you get a lot more comfortable i think i think mccormick does a really good job of kind of bullshitting with you joking with you at first easy questions to answer right and then he seems to get into the to the interview
0: just just so i have this on recording should i leave this part in or take this part out, part out i'm fine it, with this okay cool so that, yeah because i think it's this, sort of yeah. Yeah.
2: oh i think it's actually really interesting and a lot of people probably are curious about this and i think a lot of people go on podcasts talk about it like i i spoke with nick carter about this in miami and same idea it's like we both recorded with peter actually the podcast you're talking about like a day apart or something like mm-hmm. in oh November yeah or whatever and we went out to dinner had a nice time with peter and other people and we were talking about it and we both agreed it's still has a bit of performance. And I think the interesting takeaway from Nick and I's conversation is that usually if I'm really focused on a podcast, let's say, Peter's the big one. I want to do a good job. I'm on an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I leave the podcast and I, I totally blacked out. I do not remember what we talked about. <laughs> yeah, And that. that's so different from a normal conversation right. where I recall so much, but it's like this intent focus. It's anticipating what's going to be said matching right. that with like the material that you loosely in your head want to cover it but also trying to make it feel natural um and so for me it's it's computationally expensive i guess for my brain totally.
1: so i here's this is a good way to close this out tell us how it was going to hang out with michael saylor in miami
2: <laughs> that was a very cool experience um, did you
1: get much like one-on-one time with them or at least a few minutes a couple minutes. Yeah. Nice, um,
2: nice. I shook his hand. Hey, I'm Brandon. Cotto. Nice to meet you. Oh, Brandon, you're taller than I thought you'd be. <laughs> uh, and he said some kind words about my writing that that he has read, which felt very nice. Um, oh, yeah. And then, you know, then we're just talking about Bitcoin. And yeah, I mean, the guy's, he, he's like straight to business. He'll, he'll get right into a conversation with you, just like how he is in a podcast. Nice. It's pretty cool. And I think like zooming out for a second, we go to his pool house, right? It's this big, expansive grounds. There's multiple yachts, um, a whole team of staff serving drinks and food, but it's, all, it's really small. There was like 50 to 100 people there. So I felt very special even to be in that oh, yeah. environment. Like half an hour later, we're singing happy birthday to Jack Mallers. There's cakes and hugs and, you know, blow out the candles. It was very wholesome in that sense and oh, yeah. yeah just good people all around end of the miami week so the vibes were high and yeah it honestly feels like a, a little bit surreal at this point like back yeah, in just, normal life come down from the conference totally buzz right.
1: yeah 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 man it was great i had a great time in miami yeah, i yeah, wish yeah. i got to talk to brandon more but you know it's it's hectic down there trying to meet people and work. so hectic was, you know I, it was a great time and they they get better every year seriously yeah i really
2: cherish the time we had on the beach mike uh yeah that's when i feel like i got to know you and that was really good oh yeah i I feel good
0: about that conversation i knew i wanted to speak to you again so that was this was a very pleasant experience yeah brandon can't
1: can't uh thank you more for coming on this idea project that we got here and talking to us tonight
2: (laughs) i enjoyed it hopefully other people will i thought i thought we went really interesting places yeah. Um, I would listen to you guys just go off on this stuff also. So I think there's something Hell yeah, We here. got
0: our first listener. There's, there's a demand <laughs> there. There's a demand. Yeah. All right. All right,
2: cool, dude. I think a lot of Bitcoiners would listen to this. What what gets likes, so, yeah. like there's a whole segment of Bitcoiners who love the cosmic stuff. Mm-hmm. Like For Marty sure. Benton For even sure. says, let's get cosmic. And so <laughs> that's sort of, a meme in the bitcoin sphere people adopt it they wear it now oh, totally. so it's just cosmic bitcoin chats right there's yeah, easy branding
1: <laughs> you were per, you were the perfect first guest
0: oh that's pretty good branding right there i think i'm going to take that one i had one question for you but i'm not gonna ask it on this round maybe a different round if you're up for it the, later I'm, I'm happy
2: to come back this is great
0: um, yeah I'll, I'll save that question for later i just got to circle it anyway it was great having you on man uh I'll, we'll talk to you soon and uh yeah see you in slack oh where where can we (laughs) there you go yeah where where can we find out more about you or your work i should i should end with something like that right for sure that's how podcasters do it right i
2: was just gonna say you're doing it all official uh you can (laughs) find me on twitter uh brandon quittum is my name handle is b quittum my last name b-q-u-i-t-t-e-m writing's on my website you can find it on my twitter cool man
0: then uh, talk to you later I'm stop <laughs> recording now all
2: right guys
1: have a good one.